Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. 29th round of action in the Premier League this weekend. Joining me to talk about it all, my regular co-hosts, Lawrence McKenna in London, Nipun Chopra in Indiana. Gentlemen, let's let's start on the surfaces of this. There are two themes that jumped out to me this weekend, Nipun. A lot of good finishes on goals, uh, goal scorers finding those corners and really stressing the goalkeepers, but also a lot of stupid red cards. Yeah, and not just stupid red cards as we were talking about before we started recording. Stupid second yellows, the stuff that you almost wonder what some of these players were thinking, especially someone like Juan Mata, who's been in cup finals and has won trophies and won a World Cup. And you wonder what he was thinking for that second yellow. Miralish, much to the same, uh, as Lawrence pointed out, James Milner, another person who's won a bunch of trophies, very experienced, what he was thinking, uh, and Coquelin as well. So just inexplicable, some of those things. What's interesting to me about that, Lawrence, is not all of those red cards, even though all of them came reasonably early in matches, necessarily spelled doom for their teams. We'll talk about Liverpool later. They were able to fight back and get a 2-1 victory at Selhurst Park. But in the match of the weekend, Arsenal were able to come back after going down 2-1 after Francis Coquelin saw himself off, end up getting a draw at White Hart Lane. It was interesting this weekend that teams didn't necessarily give up after those hardships. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I was also quite interested in the idea that um, we, we obviously talk about hard work, all, all the intangibles, the kind of character, those side of things, the things which are maybe harder to um, quantify, mm-hmm. if you like. And we sort of fit people into, uh, you know, the same kind of molds every week. Um, I, and I, I think this season has been about sort of assessing whether those molds fit the Premier League anymore. And not only the Premier League, because obviously we talk about it as a collective, but sort of the groups of players within the Premier League. Um, you know, when United got a late winner just the other day, but now they've been scored against, what does that mean? Now Liverpool have had a late bit of hoodoo against Crystal Palace. Does that mean that their Crystal Palace is bogey team? <laughs> yeah, that does seem like the the theme of the entire season. I guess it has to be when Leicester's at the top of the table, right? You have to start questioning all the assumptions you make about... But, but, we, ha- but, we, but we have to give the right context to... The, to that questioning and that's what i find frustrating is that people sort of go down the avenue of um oh everyone else uh, arsene wenger specifically should be embarrassed because leicester have won the league this season or leicester look good to win the league this season and it, it feels a lot like people are pushing very specific and almost tailored to frustrate people's sort of narratives 
sometimes I wonder about the line between narrative and agenda. And I think that's part of us evaluating yeah. ourselves on a show that is very analysis and opinion driven. But I also wonder if sometimes we don't devote enough time to the context, that word that you use, the context rather than the conclusions, because the conclusions are basically fortune telling. We're all trying to tell the future. And as we've learned this year, Nipun, the future is always going to be nebulous when it comes to sport. But sometimes we don't spend enough time talking about the context. And as we've seen with Lester's lack of context for this championship run or uh, the stories behind Arsenal, which we have devoted quite a bit of time to, we sometimes don't pay enough attention to how interesting things are and sometimes are just in a rush to jump to our conclusions. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. I, th- I think it comes down to a lot of uh, biased hypotheses and, and confirmation bias where uh, so let I'll take myself for uh, for example every time Everton wins a game I defend Martinez every time he doesn't doesn't win I blame the team and not Martinez yeah. similarly with Arsenal um, every time Arsenal beats a big team I say here the the, the, the team has changed but when they lose to Man United or, or they keep dropping points I say well this is just a this is just a one-off result. They'll come back. So there's definitely confirmation bias. And to be honest, I'm not as critical of people as maybe Lawrence is because I understand that at the end of the day, even though we're trying to be unbiased, we also do have our biases and we do want to be right in that sense, right? So um, I don't know. But ju- I don't know. Yeah. Is that the is that the right end goal? Like I I, I know mm-hmm. you want to be right, but I don't mm-hmm. like that. More and more, that seems to be the issue is that people are striving to be right and instead of actually being right they make the hypothesis and then think right how can i fit this to make this yep exactly and that's the problem is that they'd rather be right than wrong and find out the real thing so you're you're, to be more cynical about it i don't i'm not even sure people care necessarily that they're right i think they do care that they're right i think they care more about sounding interesting in the moment than they do about whether people are going to look three or four weeks from now back on their analysis prognosis as to whether it's right or not. I think they just want to, in that moment at a time when they're asked something, have something compelling to say, maybe seem like they are devoted to the topic or have a particular level of intelligence. And I'm not even saying we don't get caught up in this, but we rarely think about what people are going to think about our opinions two months from now. I mean, that's, that's true. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead, Lawrence. It, well, I guess it's also that just – it was perfectly valid at the beginning of the season to say that someone like Leicester would probably be struggling because you looked at that team of players, you looked at the record of someone like Ranieri, but it would also would have been valid at the beginning of the season to say, you know what, no, maybe they will stay up because there are these number of factors. I don't think there was anyone out there, and maybe apart from Leicester fans – who were saying, look, our team, not our team can win the league, but our team can do very well. And there's going to be people taking speculative punts all the time, but there's a difference in taking a speculative punt and sort of amassing a load of data and saying that, you know? Absolutely. I I mean, that's that's part of it. I I guess there's just more to a lot of the games we're going to cover today than, you know, this guy tackled here, this guy scored this goal here. You know, like the, the Liverpool-Crystal Palace game is, is one of those great examples where actually Liverpool didn't play all that well um, and came away with a good result. It, it sort of goes again against everything that you'd normally think about 
Liverpool in recent years, at least. Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's concentrate on the main match of the weekend, North London Derby. North London Derby that many were describing as the most important North London Derby in history. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole, maybe not. Tottenham was right on the heels of Leicester coming into this match. Arsenal, coming off of three straight league losses, needed to get some kind of result here. The final result ended up being 2-2 at White Hart Lane. Arsenal scoring the first goal, a, a rather brilliant backheel goal for Aaron Ramsey. Tottenham shortly after Francis Coquelin sending off, scoring too quickly in the second half, and then Arsenal late through Alexis Sanchez equalizing. Nipun, just give me your overarching analysis or reaction to this game. Who played well? Who didn't play well? Who did more than you expected? Who should have done more in Saturday's initial kickoff? Overall thoughts were definitely the kind of game uh, someone who lives uh, on the West Coast, such such as yourself, the kind of game that you wake up watch at 4.45 in the morning or 5 a.m. in the morning and you think, okay, that was worth it mm-hmm. as opposed to when you watch United <laughs> and West Brom, etc. So uh, exciting game to watch. Lawrence's uh, reaction. Not for me. Yeah, la- not for Lawrence. <laughs> um, I-, I thought players that were very good. I thought Bellerin was terrific. He was very poor in the Man United game. I thought he had a good game in this game. Uh, Coquelin, we've kind of referred to the fact that he uh, had a second, a stupid second yellow. So, um, Wenger was actually rarely, usually Wenger defends his players, um, especially in, when it comes to red cards. He was fairly critical of Coquelin, uh, in, in the, in the post-match interview stating that they had essentially told him, Hey, you're on a yellow. You have to be careful at this point. And just 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes later, he had a red. It, actually, you know, it kind of reminded me of the story that Mourinho tells about Balotelli, where uh, he, he talks about the fact that Bal- Balotelli came into, uh, this is when they were to enter, and he came into uh, the, the dressing room at halftime, and, Balotelli, and Mourinho spent all 10 minutes of halftime talking to Balotelli, explaining to him how he has to uh, maintain his composure, and a minute into, second, uh, into the second half, Balotelli gets a second yellow. So it just kind of reminded me of that. Lawrence, I want to get your reaction on the game, but I kind of saw this one had four distinct parts. The first 40 minutes, Spurs were the better side. It kind of looked like a typical Spurs match where they're controlling the game, not giving the opponents any chances and kind of struggling to create clear-cut chances themselves. I think the Eric Lamella chance uh, midway through the first half was the best one they had. Then that ball goes off Eric Dyer, ends up going behind the defense. A great play from Danny Welbeck to put that ball back across the box for Bellerin off of... Aaron Ramsey, goal number one, and it looked like Spurs' def- confidence and defense was really shaken in that point. But then in the second half, Francois Coquelin gets sent off, starts the third major part of this game where Spurs end up taking that lead. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere in the second half, Arsenal started coming back into the match, started creating some chances even though they were a man down, and ended up being the better team probably toward in the last 15 or 20 minutes of this match. What were your thoughts overall, Lawrence? Um, where where would you might disagree with uh, that kind of compartmentalization of the No, I think the compartmentalization is right. I was just kind of thinking about why those compartments fitted together. And it was, uh, you know, as much about... I've been really thinking about the way that we think about Arsenal and the way that Arsenal think of themselves over the last few weeks. For instance, you know, we think of Arsenal as crumbling, those kind of things. Um, we think of them as a team who maybe wouldn't do so well in a match like this, uh, or actually it's a side who would do well in a match like this, and, uh, because, you know, they come up with surprise results at times like this, when it's sort of like, when they've got, really got their backs against the wall, we need to prove themselves. But then I'm, I'm also looking at, basically what I'm saying is everything seems to fit together, but it seems like to me, it's a, it's another one of those, in inverted commas, Premier League matches of quality and really worth getting up for, because 
bad things happen to what both managers wanted to happen in the game. Mm. So, you know, that back six, essentially, that they play, but a, a back four block with two wing backs uh, shouldn't be conceding two goals against Arsenal because actually they've been uh, fairly impenetrable this season, even with Kevin Vimmer coming in. So uh, I, I think they'll be disappointed about that. I also think that Spurs are going to be the side who's going to be more upset about losing this because going the other way, I think they would have felt that they should have overpowered Arsenal in the midfield, not only with 10 men with Coquelin, but also with the combination of Coquelin and El El Nene. But I think that, I mean, the weird thing is Arsene Wenger kind of found a system that will get around, uh, ironically, sort of, because, you know, everyone thought Spurs looked like the impenetrable team in this one, get around what Spurs wanted to sort of set out there and how solid they were. I think you're right in really pinpointing that Spurs lost a lot of belief when Arsenal scored the first goal. Gentlemen, let's take a break right now and let's talk about our sponsors here very quickly. I want to talk to everybody about SeatGeek. They were our sponsors that came in on the last show. I want to spend a little bit more time talking in detail why I think that the SeatGeek app and the service that it offers is really something that you should look into. SeatGeek is a way to get your tickets for concerts, for games in your area. It's the easiest way to look at everything that is available. I'll give you an example. The Trailblazers, a team that has been on the move in the NBA are going to be playing midweek here against the Washington Wizards. It's a game where a lot of tickets are going to be available on the secondary market and I'm not going to necessarily want to buy them until game day to try to get the best price as possible. SeatGeek makes it easy to do that. They pull all the tickets available from other sites into one place so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events like if you have a midweek basketball game that you want to go to and SeatGeek will let you know if the ticket price this fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see if the view from your seat is what you want. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. For me, that's a big deal because every time I used to go to StubHub, I would buy, say, two pairs of tickets, upper deck at the Rose Garden, $14 each, and when I go to checkout, I'm wondering why $32 is going to be charged to my tech credit card. Not the case with SeatGeek. The app is straightforward, honest with you. You want two tickets to a basketball game and it says it's $28, it's going to be $28. SeatGeek knows that you want the real price. Here's the big deal for World Soccer Talk listeners. Get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. To get that $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code WSTPOD, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. I've done it myself. I know a lot of other people have done it. Download the app and try it out. Thank Download you. the free SeatGeek app today, enter the code WSTPOD, and get your tickets the easiest way possible. Gentlemen, let's jump back into the North London Derby conversation and uh, pick up Nipun on something that Lawrence was saying, the the yes. lack of confidence it seems like Spurs had after that first goal. In a lot of ways, it was a freaky goal. You know, there's a play being contested mm-hmm. on the right flank, ball goes off Eric Dyer, ends up going behind the Tottenham defense. 
And then there seemed to be a little bit of, I don't want to say panic, but there was hesitation. Welbeck's allowed to win the ball. Welbeck's allowed to carry the ball. He's allowed to find Bellerin coming in on that run. Bellerin, instead of shooting, drives the ball sharply towards Aaron Ramsey, who has a got great back heel to get it just beyond the reach of Hugo Lloris. At the same time, when you watch that goal over and over again, it does seem like five, six different players were in this moment where they didn't quite recognize what was happening. That freakish play where the ball had gone off of Eric Dyer had put them in a mode where this very structured way that Spurs are able to control games and predict how things are going to play out all of a sudden broke down and they weren't reacting to things as quickly as you normally would think that they would. For me, that kind of speaks to a little bit of inexperience. Not mm-hmm. a not a lack of ability, but it's just something that maybe two years from now, maybe they've gone through that scenario a couple more times against a team with that kind of talent, a team that can react as quickly as they did, because Arsenal executed very well on that play. And What's that, the difference between them and this experienced Arsenal team who's had that? Well, right now, I mean, it's still, right now, still three points. Right now, it's still three points in the table. I mean, Tottenham is a better team than Arsenal. But when you're talking about players like Danny Welbeck, who have won titles, you're talking about Aaron Ramsey, who has been in the situation before. Those were two key players in that situation. And then always, inexperience doesn't necessarily cancel out in every situation. In one in one situation, the inexperience of one team could trump the inexperience of another. Or the inexperience of Team A could surface where the inexperience of Team B didn't. And in this case, I just think that, Nipun, two years from now, after Tottenham's mm-hmm. gone through this title race a little bit more often, maybe they act more decisively in that situation. And maybe we don't see them lose their confidence for 10 or 15 minutes afterwards. Right now, in that moment, they look like a team that were going through their first real title title pressure-packed push. Or maybe we are just looking too much into one moment that could be, I don't know, almost reductionistly analyzed as Ericsson and Lamella. I, I actually don't remember who was playing uh, down Tottenham's left at that moment. I know Ericsson and Lamella switched a few times. So who, whichever one of them was playing down the left who should have tracked the run, uh, maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe it's just one player switching off. And uh, we don't know. We don't know just yet. Yeah, maybe. And maybe this is like we were talking about before where we're trying to ascribe a, a, a broad set of circumstances to one isolated conclusion, Lawrence, that Tottenham mm-hmm. is inexperienced, that Tottenham hasn't been through this before. Uh, at the same time, it does seem like something we should consider. This is a game where Tottenham were the favorites. They were the better team for the first 40 minutes. They were given an opportunity to put the game away early in the second half. It didn't happen. I don't think it's such a stretch to argue that a Tottenham team that has maybe a season's worth of experience on top of what they already have does a better job in those situations. Yeah, possibly so. I, I was more interested in the kind of overall game management uh, from Tottenham. And I do think they have certain players within that side that give them um, that. I think it was very positive for them that Dembele played. I think Dyer's been fantastic at doing the same this season, backed up immediately by Aldo Vireld. And then just the overall indus- industry of those three just ahead of that mm-hmm. have really helped them compete against other Premier League sides. And I think... Uh, part of what we don't acknowledge about Arsenal is that actually they're not a possession-based team. They don't necessarily need possession to well, win a game. It so, seems binary with them. They either decide to be a possession-based team because they, they are averaging more possession than any team in the league or they're capable I think of playing that, like this like they did but, against Spurs and City. But what I would say about Arsenal is that's less about the fact that they're trying to dominate the possession and more about, I think, how a lot of teams choose mm. to play Arsenal and give them the possession. I see because what saying, it, yeah. it changes. So Arsenal aren't necessarily choosing that. It's that they have the possession and that is what they do with that. They can have long spells of possession, which actually don't seem that effective. And I think there are a lot of fans that get quite frustrated by that. 
but then they hit teams very quickly. And I think that that's what we're talking about here with this Welbeck goal um, is that they hit teams very fast. They strike them with something that seems to the to the opposition, maybe to the outside, something quite surprising. And it, it tends to work because actually they have a lot of avenues of attack. And if you look at the two guys who scored their goal, Alexis Sanchez um, and the other goal scorer, Aaron Ramsey, it, you've got two guys there who are sort of famed within this Arsenal team for breaking in such a way and being central to those moves. So isn't actually a surprise that Arsenal are in this position. And I, what I think Spurs did struggle with was kind of working out where that uh, impetus for this Arsenal team was and that's the point I think what you're talking about with maybe game management and experience and an experienced player will probably marshal their side to, to make them a, more of a, a compact unit perhaps I think my thing with their experience was definitely more at the back where it seems like the way that they've controlled games this year has kept them away from the type of counterattacks that we started seeing towards the end of the first half and then at various points in the second half I think Arsenal's skill set has a lot to do with that. The players that we saw in those counterattacks, Welbeck, Ozil, Ramsey, Sanchez, they're players that not a lot of other teams can really replicate. But I also think that Tottenham's style really helped in the first 40 minutes or so. We saw mm-hmm. players like Deli Ali, other players kind of really troubling the Coquelin Elneny layer of Arsenal, where those players were doing a good job providing a shield for the defense, but they weren't actually doing a good job connecting with Ramsey and Olsel. And we saw at times where Ramsey and Olsel had to drop deeper. Uh, Lawrence, I want to stay with you, and I want to talk about mm. Arsenal's selection, because we saw Coquelin and Elneny played together for the first time. It was Elneny's first Premier League start. We saw yeah. Welbeck selected up top instead of Olivier Giroud, somebody that provides a little bit of more help um, in the defensive game. His speed provides a good outlet option. Basically, it was a it was a selection that set up to highlight exactly what you were talking about. Arsenal not looking for possession. Arsenal willing to play off the counter. Arsenal willing to be on the back foot in this game. And I'm not sure if it necessarily i'm not sure the extent to which it helped because of the nature of the game the sending off having such a big deal but at least i thought arsenal executed that selection well yeah i i I actually don't know how different it is for arsenal if they lose someone in that sort of space because actually that space seems quite ineffective for arsenal uh Mm -hmm. very often um (laughs) and so uh you know they, they didn't even really make a sub they just readjusted when i say really they didn't make a sub um after that and even then they actually subbed on they off um for Olivier Giroud I think later in the game so essentially they were taking players off that you would have thought were very key to that and I think that again shows more about um the, the way that Arsenal were choosing to play this match um it, it was more what did you think about after Sanchez scored his goal what both Arsenal and Spurs did Nipun what do you think I, I don't know I mean I at that point I think Arsenal was by far this, the more likely team to score. I, even at, with 10 men, I thought they created a couple of good chances. Um, and I don't know if the, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head if they did anything tactically that was different, but what at that moment, but what I did notice in the second half in particular was that Ramsey, Otsil and Sanchez, um, more so Ramsey and Otsil kind of tended to get into the same areas. Mm-hmm. And while that has been an issue before, Earlier on, Bellerin and Gibbs provided enough width that it wasn't so much of an issue. But now with 10 men, obviously Bellerin and Gibbs couldn't push up as much. And because of that fact, I felt Ramsey and Otsil were, were not being able to influence the game as much because they were in the exact same areas. And therefore, there was no one stretching the play in, from, from an Arsenal perspective. Lawrence, I will say about the question that you asked, one thing that I just kept thinking of during the last 15 or so minutes of this game is that 
a tie is a, basically both of these teams have to look at a tie as being kind of like a loss. I mean, this is an opportunity for both of these teams to not only keep up with Leicester, but to really deal a blow to the other main title contender that they're dealing with. And in that sense, a draw, particularly with Leicester visiting Watford later in the day, is something that both teams should have tried to avoid at all costs, I think. And while that's easy to say for me when I'm not sitting there playing with 10 men and having just fought back to get a second goal, um, we saw with Leicester winning later in the day that this this 2-2 draw, as exciting as it was and as event-filled as it was, really hurt both of the teams. Yeah, but I, I guess the I mean the problem is at one point either side was winning. You know, if you end up drawing, it's probably you know I don't think either of these teams really played for the draw. Right. Um. I you know I, I think it was that actually Spurs wanted to win this and um, they just didn't play it well after um after Sanchez scored. Yeah, I, I think that's what I, I guess I just would have wanted. It seems weird to say this because I thought there definitely were elements of teams going for it. But I guess mm-hmm. I just didn't see the desperation and abandon that I would have necessarily wanted. And I, I, I have to concede that's, that's through the eye of the beholder. And maybe I'm being mm-hmm. too cynical about it. But, uh, this was in, even though there are nine matches to go in the season, this was a huge result, uh, particularly with Leicester's schedule ahead. And we know that they've dealt with most of their big fixtures for the rest of the year. And also ho- with the other, the other two and their big fixtures. I mean, if you look at Arsenal's next few fixtures, they've got some pretty, um, tasty encounters <laughs> um you know like you say they're playing hull they've got the barcelona's high west brom's a difficult one they've got everton uh, you know watford it, arsenal's running is not a nice one for them and because of this result and you know because of the misfortune they had in this game they are eight points back let's go ahead and take our first break now gentlemen when we come back we will talk about the team that continues to extend its lead at the top of the table Leicester. we will also talk about the two manchester sides that came into this weekend tied for fourth place in the premier league stay with us this is the world soccer talk podcast Welcome back to the show. Hopefully you enjoyed that music. We're going to talk about the other teams at the top of the Premier League table now. Leicester versus Watford Nipun. Let's talk about this one. I think this match played out pretty much as we thought it would. Watford is a very good defensive team. Leicester was probably going to have the better, uh, as far as the run of play is concerned in this game. Took a great Riyad Mahrez goal, but ultimately the 1-0 result, I'm not sure anybody's going to be too surprised by that one. You know, I have a bit of a different analysis of this game. I, I thought Watford was by far the better team in this game. What? I thought, yeah, I thought in the first half especially, Watford looked really good on the break. Amrabat looked good. He troubled Fuchs all evening. I thought Watford should have won this game. And, and what I was thinking was uh, that it was, in some ways, using a cliche, a sign of a champion that uh, in the last three or four games now, Leicester has been playing not so well and continues to collect uh, at least some points, in this case, all three. So that's how I watched this game. I'm curious what you and Lawrence thought. Yeah, Lawrence, I want to hear your thoughts, because after, as Nipun says, that I do definitely remember some some isolated chances for Watford and making things scary, but uh, even the numbers don't really support that so much. Uh, I mean, it's not like Watford were terrible, but, like you know, Leicester almost doubled their shots on target in this game. Yeah, and, it, you know, it was... <laughs> Basically, the, the Mercurial players up front for Leicester ended up getting a goal instead of the Mercurial player up front for Watford. Oh, 
yeah, I suppose uh, I suppose that's a way to to look at it. Although I'm not sure that uh, well, maybe Mercurial is a good way to requ- uh, to talk about Riyad Mahrez. Uh, I thought that was a good example of a lot of the goals that we saw this weekend. Maybe not the the over overwhelmingly powerful strike that you want to see, but the placement on Mahrez's goal to beat Gomez was perfect, right inside that right post from a I guess it was about 18 meters out, guys, or something like yeah. that. Right and and also box. also his movement for that, you know, he he held his position where a lot of players would have been drawn into uh, looking for a cross. He kind of just held his position at the top of the box. Uh, and the ball came to him, and as you said, terrific finish. So it was also his movement as well as the finish, and that's kind of why he's uh, one of the hottest players in the world right now. There is a little bit of worry for Watford. Um, obviously, in the string of results they've had, they it, basically, if you manage to push their both of their guys out of the position they want to be in up front, so Dini or Regalo, mm-hmm. then it does somewhat stilt this team a little bit. And you know, I understand that they are. You know, they're, they're a side uh, who, who are playing better. You know, they're definitely going to stay in the Premier League. And that's a real positive for them. They can build on this. But I, I was I was a little bit worried that at some point the wheels will fall off. And they've not been getting the results that you want a side like Watford to, especially considering that at one point they had some really good momentum going on. Um, you know, they've had some pretty... I think the best result they've even had recently was probably the 2-1 win against Palace and the 2-1 win against Newcastle United. Mm. That's not great. Yeah, I don't think uh Kike Sanchez Flores has done a good job adjusting to other teams adjusting to his striker combo. Uh the adjustment seems to have been with the acquisition of Mario Suarez from Fiorentina to play three very defensive midfielders, Etienne Capu, Ben Watson, Mario Suarez, and then have Amar Amarbot fill in that space between the strikers and those defensive midfielders. And it's just not working. I, I you know, not everything yeah. that coaches try works. But it seems like at this point he needs to make an adjustment. Or or maybe he doesn't, guys. I mean, maybe Watford is just safe at this point. He's gonna play out the season trying to figure out what he has and what he doesn't have and come back with a <laughs> given the given the consortium that Watford's part of, a one hundred percent different team next year. They might have the whole Udinese roster on their team. Who knows? Uh, well that's what's interesting, isn't it? Is that you know, I mean <laughs> The, the conventional wisdom was be, look, you have to put a team of players together that know each other well, particularly. What he did was he found a tactic which meant that you didn't necessarily have to have a team of players that fitted together exceptionally well. You just had to do some very basic things very well. And I, I say very basic. I'm, I don't mean that in a reductionist way to what he's done. What I mean is he sort of broke the team down into different sections and then had t- Troy, Dini and Igalo up front. Mm. And that works, but I don't think that's a long-term plan for Watford. And the worry is that they, you know, how do they build from here? Because, you know, we, we criticised um, City for being tourists. They're tourists of choice. Th- this Watford squad may end up being tourists who don't have a choice but to go somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, maybe some more and, create- and that, that only lasts so long. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you can see some obvious places where they could improve. We talked about that midfield getting a little bit more creativity in there, but I feel the same way you do, Lawrence. They seem like a team that's set up to be a lower to mid table side and how they kind of bridge that gap between a team that can merely survive and one that can push uh, up to uh, the edge of a European spot. Maybe that's their next challenge or maybe they need to go through one more one or more seasons of survival in order to stabilize themselves. I, I will say this about this game. The, uh, there was a double substitution at halftime at this one. Lester, Claudio Ranieri takes off Shinji Okazaki, takes off Mark Albrighton and brings on Jeremy Schlup and, uh, Andy King. And Andy it, King. Yeah. And it really seemed to solidify the midfield. I think Claudio Ranieri deserves some credit there. And 
As a result, Leicester has increased their lead at the top of the table to five points, whereas this time last weekend it was three, I believe. That seems like so far away. Uh, let's talk about the Manchester sides. They came into this weekend tied for fourth place. One of these games doesn't really deserve much discussion, and that's to City's credit. Aston Villa did go to halftime at the Etihad, tr- tied nil-nil, but a second-half explosion from Manchester City, 4-0 in this one. Nipun, anything we can take from this result? Yeah. I mean, just continuing to hammer down on Villa because, as you said, they went five at the back and they did get uh, halftime nil-nil, but that's only because of uh, some some luck and some good goalkeeping because they were carved open over and over again, even in the first half before any goals went in. Aguero in particular was having a field day against that defense. Lescott has become... He's not even a shadow of the defender he once was at Everton. I know I know people talk about his time at City, but at Everton he was he was a good defender and you watch him play right now alongside also ex City defender Micah Richards and both of them you could have put six people next to them, put fifteen people in goal and they would have still ended up losing this game. They were very poor. Julian Lescott has become almost Remy Gard's concession flag that every time he starts Julian Lescott at this point, it's like he's admitting that he doesn't want the job next year. And at the same time, you saw that, um, you see some of the other defenders, uh, on the team that aren't doing that well. And you wonder if there really are any other options. Just Lescott looks like he's just, he's just done. Uh, Manchester City with the victory is 10 points behind Leicester City. Uh, they're, they do have a game in hand. Perhaps more important for Manchester City, they're only one point up on West Ham for fourth place. We'll talk about West Ham in the next segment. Instead, Lawrence, let's talk about Manchester United versus West Brom. Uh, Nipun already mentioned some thoughts on this. We'll get back to him in a second. Uh, before breaking down Manchester United, I want to talk about West Brom a little bit. Uh, they have been widely derided on the show for stylistic reasons. Uh, to At some point last month, they started to be derided for their actual results. But Lawrence, in their last four games, they have 10 points, and all of a sudden, they're 11, in 11th place, only one point behind Chelsea. Uh, say what you want about this game. They were up a man for almost, well, for over over 60 minutes of it. They still got their 10th win of the season. Tony Pulis still put his team in, possession to, in position to get three points, and ultimately... They got him. Yeah. I mean, I, I've not been one of those people deriding West Brom, so no, I don't know why you're coming to me. To, yeah, I, I'm coming to you to kind of reinforce what you've been saying all face. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to put, to well, put me in my place. Yeah. Well, you stay there, Richard, because <laughs> – uh, no, I mean, uh, I think the satisfying side um, for Pulis would be that he feels somewhat vindicated. <sighs> But again, it is about getting results for West Brom um, it, more than it feels like the enjoyment sometimes. Yeah. And then there are little moments. It's on, it, you know, I, we put him in a similar um, place to uh, the Sam Allardyce type people. But then there are certain players in there that who can still, I, I don't want to call them mercurial. I can't think of the word, but it, like they fit into that JJ Okocha type role. Berahino, Rondo, you could say Cessnion mm-hmm. fits in there. And they're backed up by other players who know where to get the ball to. You know, that feels awfully reductionist um, to a side that's clearly well-drilled and clearly uh, excellent at defending. Not that you have to be to beat Manchester United just recently. But even then, I I think there's still a huge achievement to what Tony Pulis is doing doing there. I think part of the rejection of Tony Pulis is that people almost do want the Premier League to be more complex, if you like. Um, Or they don't want it. It's almost like, you know, that guy years ago wore a mask um, and revealed all the magician's tricks. Um, he's it, Tony Pulis is a little bit like that, hmm. you know. 
he's sort of the guy that goes, no, I, I literally have just got the coin in my other hand. And everyone's going, Tony, just leave the party. And he's like, no, no, I, I, I can't let this one lie. And you're like, Tony, just go. <laughs> and he just sticks around in his West Brom suit. <laughs> Naboon, let's talk to you about Manchester United. I want, there's the broader Manchester United picture. They're down to sixth place. They've lost a match that they maybe some people coming into this one thought they should have gotten three points on. It's really hard to look at those those kind of issues when you have a man sent off and I believe it was the 26th minute or something like that today. So let's focus in on this game and let's talk about it in that light. Can you really fault any of the players, Van Hall or anything for this result, given how long they played down a man? Well, you can fault, well, you can't fault Van Hall for a stupid moment from Juan Mata, uh, especially on the back of one of Juan Mata's best moments in a United shirt, which was that free kick uh, in midweek. So, you can't fault him for that, but you can fault him for dropping Schneiderlin, who has been a big part of what has been good about Man United in the last two and a half weeks. He, he's been a center point in that holding role. Uh, dropping Schneiderlin, you can maybe criticize him for dropping Memphis, who again has been a big part of United's recent quote-unquote resurgence. Um, you probably can't criticize him for picking Darmian over Varela, who has just been run into the ground. So it's a mixed bag there, in my opinion. Objectively, there are things you can blame him for. But w- the one thing that I for sure want to point out, and we'll get to Liverpool later, but the difference between Louis van Hall's understand- not understanding... Oh. Louis van Hall's army. The difference between Louis van Hall's uh, idea of what football should be and, the, and uh, Jurgen Klopp's idea of what football should be can be analyzed by what happened today. Because both these teams were a man down and a goal down. And the subs that they made tells a story about how they picture the game of football being. Louis van Gaal makes two essentially defensive subs. Whereas uh, Klopp goes ahead and rolls the dice, uh, gets on um, uh, even Benteke and, and a couple of other attacking players, gets Coutinho on. And I think that is what frustrates Manchester United is that Louis van Gaal's default is possession and control. That may be I'll one still of put it this way. I mean, c- can we then contrast that with Liverpool, who then got two very fortunate goals? Yeah, let's do that in the next segment. We are going to talk about Liverpool. We're going to talk about a West Ham team that has now inched to the edge of Champions League qualification. And we'll talk more about that contrast that uh, Nipun just highlighted. Liverpool being still being aggressive when they go down a man. As a result, they are now into the European spots in the Premier League. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back. Second half of the show, World Soccer Talk Podcast. Let's get you up to date on what's been happening around Europe, then we'll do our Players of the Week, and then talk about the rest of the top half of the Premier League table. The big game in Europe this weekend was in Germany, where Der Klassiker, the second one of the season, hoped to be a little better than the first one of the season, where Bayern Munich beat Dortmund 5-1 to at the Allianz Arena before the winter break. This one had particular importance because, based on last week's results, Dortmund had cut the league at, lead at the top of the table from 8 points to 5 points. A win for BVB would have meant a real title race in Germany. Maybe we still have a real title race in Germany, even though this one ended nil-nil. Bayern Munich dominating possession, but not necessarily dominating the game, as is their stifling play enabled that nil-nil draw. 
Borussia Dortmund stays five points back of Bayern Munich, who still appear on track for a Bundesliga title. However, the air of invulnerability over the last two rounds has left Bayern. Lower down in the table, Hertha Berlin continues to hold on to the last automatic Champions League spot, even though they lost 2-0 at Hamburg this weekend. Schalke, with their victory over Cologne, climbs to fourth place. Mainz is one point back. Borussia Borussia Mönchengladbach, two points back of Schalke. And then two big hitters are currently outside of the European spots in Germany. Seventh place Wolfsburg, even though they won this weekend, 2-1 over Gladbach, is on 37 points. And then maybe the big story in Germany right now, Bayer Leverkusen, third place not too long ago, has only one point through their last four games after a draw this weekend at 10-man Augsburg. They are now down to eighth place and currently looking at a 2016-2017 season without European football. Let's go over to Spain, where Barcelona continued to try to pull away even more at the top of La Liga's table. A 4-0 result on Sunday at Ibar gave them, temporarily, an 11-point lead on Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid had maybe a difficult game going to this, um, going to Valencia to cap off Sunday's matchups. And it was 1-1 after a half an hour. But late in this match, goals by Fernando Torres and Yannick Ferreira Carrasco. Book ended. Adrian Santos is sending off in the 80th minute. Atletico Madrid did get their victory. They're still within eight points. Other news in Spain. Real Madrid coming off, well... A disappointing performance last week against Atletico Madrid thumped Real, thumped Celta Vigo seven to one. Again, lower down the table, probably the biggest news in this league. Villarreal came into this weekend with a 14 match unbeaten run and had a home game against the Las Palmas side, which while resurgent, still one of the bottom sides in the league. Las Palmas, however, gets a one to nothing victory over the yellow submarine. Villarreal's gap with third place Real Madrid is now back up to seven points. Lastly, we're going to update you on is the championship where we've had some more changes. Burnley has climbed to the top of the table off the back of their fourth win in a row. One nil victory over Blackburn on Saturday puts them on 68 points. One point above Middlesbrough, who really should be at the top of the table. But against Blackburn, their own match against Blackburn midweek, they lost 2-1. to They, based on Friday's victory over Wolverhampton Wanderers, are still within a point of the top and they still have a match in hand. The playoff slots in the championship are currently occupied by Hull, who with one point in their last two games have fallen from the league's perch, then Brighton, Derby, and Sheffield Wednesday. Gentlemen, let's slow it down here a little bit. Let's talk about our players of the week. A lot of good goals this week. A lot of good play in general this week. Leaves both of you with a bunch of options. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to collect myself and really decide here as I have a, a list of players in front of me that will be whittled down by two after you two give your <laughs> decisions. But Nipun, why don't you go ahead and go first? Who is your player of the week? It was going to be Lukaku, even though he missed a, a, a PK. I thought he was terrific. But it's after today's West Brom win, I'm going to go with Darren Fletcher. Uh, he's one of my favorite players of the Premier League era. Uh, just model professional. And he, he was huge today. Uh, he's, along with Jakob, pretty much nullified Carrick uh, and Herrera. Um, and was involved in actually the, the sending off of uh, his ex-teammate Juan Mata. So, um, yeah, Darren Fletcher was terrific today. Player of the week for me. Hmm. Lawrence. Go down the Gilfie Sigurdsson route just because, you know, Swansea don't get very much time uh, on any podcast or anywhere really. Even the Swansea fan channel, I imagine, don't spend a lot of time on them. Um, and I, again, he got the goal, uh, which set them apart from Norwich, which 
Norwich are desperate for points at the moment. Um, and I think in many ways Swansea are too in order to keep them uh, just above that drop zone, even though, you know, they've kind of got a bit of distance. They've had somewhat of an indifferent season, but he's been one of those kind of the players who uh, has been the difference between, you know, them really uh, dropping completely down to the uh, relegation zone and not. What's disappointing for Swansea is you think about their status just not so long ago. And maybe, the, you know, you think about maybe where they could invest their money. And if they had a consistent manager this season, how much higher up the table they could be. Mm. Yeah, it's been a long time since at the beginning of the season, the three of us were talking about how high up the table Swansea could finish based on good performances <laughs> of Stamford Bridge and the like. Uh, yeah, another example of uh, foolish predictions. The future is something nobody can actually see. Uh, Monk for England. It's, Sigerson also was another player that had one of those quietly good finishes this weekend, tucked that ball right into the far corner after it was played across the box to him. Uh, I am going to go with somebody that I, I kind of try to do avoid because he did most of his damage on a team that was playing 11 against 10. Uh, I also tried to avoid him because something curious happened as I was reviewing the highlights of this Saturday game. Uh, those highlight packages that the Premier League sends out that you kind of get the, the generic voiceover on. And that generic voiceover called Dimitri Payet talismanic. Uh, when they first re- re- referred to West Ham's talismanic player, I almost thought something good was going to happen regarding Mark Noble. And then when Dimitri Payet scored that goal, I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird because he actually hasn't been at the club that long. But in a way, he has become West Ham's talismanic player because he is somebody that represents an aspiration of what West Ham can become, a, a, the quality of player that he represents, how he came to the club, the the fact that they were able to get a player that, uh, whether you buy into the hype that he has earned this year or not, is somebody that Hammers fans can take a sense of pride in. And in this game, he again reinforced why that pride is well-placed, had an assist, had the last goal in West Ham's 3-2 comeback victory at Goodison Park. And overall, especially over the last 40 minutes of this game, really showed why he's somebody that people need to strongly consider for a best 11 place this year. I think Dimitri Payet has gotten a lot of press based on how exotic he seems. There always seems to be a love of the, the continental player with a, a bit of class on the ball that comes over and adds a little something to the Premier League, a narrative that has existed for 21 years in England. Uh, but, well, more than 21 years. 21 years is the MLS league number at this point. Uh, but this week, I think Dimitri Payet at the end of this game really earned that moniker. Uh, he's been very way- central to most. Of, I mean, it's been very difficult for West Ham to even be creative without him around. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of their great moves come from him. He finishes off, or at least looks like he's going to finish a lot of, it, of their great moves off. I think he was the guy who provided the cross to go through against Liverpool in the FA Cup. Um, I think West Ham do actually struggle quite a lot without him, actually. I mean, they had that run of games where he wasn't around, where it wasn't so fantastic um, for them. I think they even struggle with him sometimes. Like in this game, in the first half of this game, when Everton were the better side, they were having to play directly to Emmanuel Emineke to get the ball into their uh, attacking half. And even before then, we saw that the first two goals were set pieces, and a lot of times they have to rely on that. Not that Dimitri Payet isn't crucial in that, but whenever they're actually trying to do something creative, when they're actually building play, it's almost always Payet. And, and in that way, Lawrence, maybe I'm a little bit... uh I'm being a little bit too stubborn about this talismanic label. Maybe he is a little bit talismanic. Let's talk about West Ham a little bit more in a second, but let's pick up on the parallel that Nipun was drawing at the end of last segment, uh, looking at Manchester United, how they handled their life when they were reduced to 10. Compare that to Liverpool, Lawrence, how they came back against Crystal Palace. And I think you were right hinting at the beginning of the show that Liverpool, for a lot of this match, weren't actually that good. 
No, Liverpool weren't actually that good. Um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of positives again for individuals within that, and I think very often Liverpool play some nice intricate moves, but the shape of the midfield sometimes looks a little bit disjointed. They didn't actually play a holding midfielder really today. When you look at Emery Chan, Jordan Henderson, and Milner, it's all about pressing mm-hmm. for Liverpool, and that that outlet. Uh, to Lalana can sometimes be fantastic, sometimes very frustrating. And <laughs> early on, they had, I mean, there's three very frustrating players up front, um, Firmino, Lalana, and Origi, um, who can all have moments of brilliance, but also be sometimes very frustrating to watch. Liverpool uh, pressed themselves onto the game in the first 20, and then Crystal Palace came into it, and Liverpool seemed to recede back. Um I, I, I still think uh, the part of the reason Liverpool struggled to control games is because their fullbacks are good, but do not move the ball well enough and do not, um, how can I put this? If a uh, more experienced fullbacks or more, uh, ex- uh, fullbacks with a better vision for the game may take the ball forward better and offer Liverpool more options. As it happens, I feel like Liverpool go forward on the wings sometimes and just end up looking back and moves end up breaking down. That's part of the problem with this side at the moment is they tend to make moves and then things seemed to break down very quickly um, and that worked very well in uh, Crystal Palace's favour because they've got players that can break very well in Zaha and Balassi on the other side um, Adebayor didn't look interested at times today in this match um, and Liverpool's pressing was, and you know sort of midfield movement of the ball was just allowed at mm. times um, and you know maybe that's because he was told to do that but at the same time um, you know I'd imagine that's probably not the best way to play Liverpool you know if you press them in the midfield they can be a frustrated team. Emery Chan, by the way, is a fantastic-looking figure out there. Still, he seems he's, he's to be really man. growing into the leadership. Oh, you're talking, he, about, he you're talking about his play. Okay. Yeah, uh, he's very majestic though um, as a player, and he's you know I, I really enjoy watching him yeah. because I think he he see, he's one of those midfield players that gets Liverpool fans on their feet um, because you know when he's got the ball, we've seen him do back heels as assists this season. He tends to be part of these intricate moves. Um, and whilst they don't rely on him, I think he's a player that other Liverpool players trust. And I think that's a real key part to it. Uh, you guys need to call me on my confirmation bias in the future because when Klopp came in, I thought Chan and Lalana both would be big beneficiaries of the new style. So I'm going to be very inclined to give both him and Lalana the benefit of the doubt anytime going forward. Maybe I'll just pass off the analytical baton on those guys to you in the future. Uh, but Nipun, I want to talk, Nipun, I want to talk about Liverpool. I want to get your, yeah. Uh, thoughts on their future over the next, they have 10 matches remaining in the league. They're only, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're only six points out of a Champions League spot. They're now in the seventh place in the league. Uh, of course, they have a huge matchup in Europa League coming up there. We're drawn together with Manchester United. We'll talk about that more on Wednesday's show. But in their last four rounds in the Premier League, they have picked up 10 points. Their form is as good as anybody in the league over that time. Do you think that that is just, well, how indicative do you think those last four games are of the actual level of Liverpool's play right now? That's a good question. I think with with Liverpool, it's it's difficult to gauge how they are as a team because I think Lawrence hinted at it when he started talking about the fact that individually that there are some moments of brilliance from all these players, but collectively, I haven't seen that much. E- even even in the games that. Liverpool fans at the end of the season will remember as the fondest moments of the season vis-a-vis the wins, the amazing wins against City, for example, um, not in the League Cup, of course. Uh, even in those games, it was a little bit of, you know, the, obviously the Gangnam style, Gigan pressing, but mostly just brilliant moments from a couple of players here and there. 
So because of that, it makes the analysis of Liverpool as a collective unit difficult. And I think most Liverpool supporters, and I would probably be inclined to agree with this, would be okay with that because the the way Rodgers set up his team is not going to be the way that Liverpool continues once once Klopp is able to invest uh, in the summer and kind of change, tweak things here and there. Uh, so there will be player turnover. So I think most Liverpool supporters would be okay with the fact that that identity probably doesn't exist. And they're probably running right now on the, on, on the idea that they are being uh, maybe somewhat unfairly criticized in the press. And I think with Klopp, he's able to motivate those players. So it's mostly Klopp-driven uh, motivational technique as opposed to any serious tactical thing that I'm seeing. You can tell they're being coached in a different way, though, and obviously being set up in a different way. And I think some players have reacted better um, to that than others because obviously they're either more key or less key in the side. Uh, the midfield shape is really fascinating. I still think Klopp is sort of lacking the player he wants yeah. in there and he's kind of trying to make other players into that. So that's why Milner, I think, is actually a really handy player from this season because he's so sort of industrious and... Um, yeah, I mean, he seems to have a lot of shuttlers and no real holders besides Lucas. So that'll be an area this offseason. I think a lot of areas are going to be addressed this offseason. It's going to be a crazy offseason at Liverpool. There are going to be so many buys, but there are going to be so many sales too. I mean, there might be nine players going and ten players coming. It's going to it's gonna be a very interesting team that you're going to be asked to support next year, uh, Lawrence. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what they put together there. Uh, let's go and It's going to change. I think it'll change a lot. Yeah, um, I think so. Be, it, I mean, that's part of the problem. Is again, it's another season where people are sort of going, "Okay, we're restarting now. What are we? What are we doing?" Yeah, but I think that Leicester's example this year shows that you can make a number of changes as long as you have some kind of idea of what you want to do and it, um, a kind of a clear philosophy that you can overcome those. Although it could also be a problem on the other end. We see what's happened with Newcastle, where they've had a ton of changes too, and they've right. never seemed to come together. So I, I, do, I do find that interesting, though. I mean, uh, if you look at um, say basketball, for instance, some teams have massive turnover in an off season. Um, you know, nine, ten people who yeah. are then core to a side, and you know, I mean, I know Golden State have been playing together for a while now, and you know, it's more about drills, those kind of things, very often the individual. But a lot of those guys, it's not like they've been together for years playing together, and they are, you know, they're playing exceptionally well. So I do think football is a sort of an interesting um, sport in that term that we sort of we 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 think a lot about chemistry. Because there's so much emphasis put on it. But also, uh, to just take the analogy further, because we talk about this all the time with uh, NASL, which is our other soccer league here in America that no one knows about. Um, there's almost every season, there's almost entire turnover in terms of players. You know, mm -hmm. um, players that start one season, about eight or nine out of those players will be gone the following season. And I think that does have an impact more in soccer than it does in basketball. Because in basketball, you have, of course, I'm oversimplifying this, but you have... Uh, certain defensive situations but most of the time it comes down down to one-on-one -on -one matchups where you're trying to beat a player uh, a, a, an opposite opposition player and try to get to the basket whereas with soccer i think there's a little more tactical um requirement than there is in basketball hmm. maybe i mean basketball has this huge 82 game regular season to work things out and yeah. for the most part in basketball 
teams aren't practicing during the regular season. They're kind of using their games as practice. Whereas in, whereas in soccer, you pretty much have a week to prepare for every game and how your team improves is less dictated by the 90 minutes on the weekend than the 360 minutes you play. You try to forge your team in between the matches. So, uh, maybe we've gotten ourselves to a point, gentlemen, where we're trying to draw parallels where they might not exist. Uh, let's I'm about- just I'm just wondering about where you, wh- how teams are. Con- I mean, you know, you can think, still look, yeah, at, you know, like a Greg Popovich and someone like that, and you'd say there's definitely something that you can learn from Greg Popovich in football. I, I also think there's a huge confirmation bias thing here because based on our own interpersonal reactions in our lives and in our workplaces, we want to think that chemistry camaraderie, the ability to know and experience what another person is doing over a long period of time matters. Mm -hmm. And I think that also when we're analyzing this or people that are away from teams analyze it, they go back to that nugget because it's something that they can empathize with. It's something from their own lives that they think has a parallel in the athletic world and they can speak with authority on it because it's the same in any kind of team environment. I don't think we have very much proof that that actually exists in the athletic world. We do have a lot of players that they that say, oh, you know, we knew each other so well, back of our hand type of stuff. And then we have situations even going back to like the Brian Clough days where he would bring in four or five players to his his Derby and his Nottingham Forest teams, shake up the whole thing, and the team would go on to, to win the league in a very short period of time. So Yeah, that's a really great because I mean, you know, even Cristiano Ronaldo, I don't know how reductionist he was of his own teammates. Um, even though he is very reductionist, sometimes his own teammates, even if he will then eat his own foot afterwards. The, the point with him was, you know, whenever we talk about money, cars and girls, or like, I, I think uh, shoes, cars and girls, right? Um, and, and I sort of think, well, I'm almost grateful I'm not a footballer for that reason. <laughs> Gentlemen, let's talk about Everton West Ham, although we have talked about West Ham a little bit here and there. So let's talk about Everton, because I think a lot of people are going to be focusing on the fact that Everton gave away a result that they should have had. Sure, Kevin Morelish got sent off early in the first half, foolishly, very much in a Juan Mata type of vein. But Everton was up 2-0, had a penalty kick early in the second half that Romelu Lukaku failed to convert. Even then, two-goal lead at home. They were certainly down a man, but they were also playing better at that time, too. They find a way to lose this one late. Nipun, I'm going to go to you because we talked about a very similar topic when we were analyzing Manchester United. How much do you blame Louis van Gaal for what happened during that game, given that the early sending off really handcuffed him? A lot of people are going to look at this and want to blame Roberto Martinez, but the same description applies to him. I think the only difference is that a lot of people have been arguing that with Everton, their collapses, their willingness to give away points late has been a mentality thing. And in that sense, you can blame Roberto Martinez on a long-term level for failing to instill that mentality my question to you is how much does that explanation actually hold up given saturday's events but so so let me answer it in a more holistic way because Uh, if it was just saturday's events then i'd say you know it's just one data point but we have to go back to you know the the loss against burnmouth and multiple they've they've conceded 14 points from winning positions and that's no coincidence so because of that yeah, yeah, that's. I think it's the joint most in the Premier League, if not the most in the Premier League. That would be a lot. Yep. So, fourteen points. I mean, think about that. Fourteen points. If if Everton had collected those fourteen points, uh, I'm not. I don't have the table in front of me, but I'm guessing they'd be in Champions League spots. I'm not sure about. They would that. be tied but, with Arsenal. Yeah. Well, yeah. So they. So, so even exactly, if so even if lot. they collected half of them, they would be in seventh place, which was kind of like that's been the barometer for Everton this season. Can they at least compete, but more more readily, can they qualify for Europe given their talent level? 
So yeah, the, I think Martinez does have to shoulder the blame. I think those players have to shoulder the blame. Uh, he he subbed on Gareth Barry in in for the last five minutes, and and on paper that was a good decision because they were trying to save what had become one point uh, at that point, and it didn't work even with a player that has had that much experience. You you can make the argument that Gareth Barry at Manchester City or at any other club would not have made uh, would have made a significant impact coming on as an impact sub to save a game for five minutes. But he had none of that. He was pretty much a deer caught, caught in headlights. So uh, when you look at that, there is something that's endemic to the club, and uh, it might have to do with Martinez and a mentality. Mm. Well, I mean, it is also that when you look at the way that West Ham chose to attack that back line, if you look at the difference in numbers and you, you look at the difference in the shape of the back four to maybe a back three or back five, however you want to interpret it, um, there are certain weaknesses to a back three in the same way there are weaknesses mm. to a back five. But, but, there are but certain thing, weaknesses. Sorry, to Lawrence, to, 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 as a counterpoint, it's the, my what I'm trying to get at is for 80 minutes, for 80 minutes, West Ham created absolutely nothing in this game. So it's not that the entire time this defensive backline has been poor. It's the fact that one goal went in and you can excuse that, that w- there was one defensive lapse. But the point was West Ham created nothing. Once that goal went in, it was almost as if this Everton backline had never played together. And I think that's a mentality thing. Hmm. I also think that it's that, that Dimitri Payet changed his position and then they began to score goals. He sort of went more inside right than he was uh, before and pushed a little bit higher up the pitch. And I think that just threw them off completely because they didn't know what to do with the movement that was going on and the number of people in that area. And again, uh, you know, I didn't watch the full game. I only saw the highlights. But from what I saw of the highlights, it looked like he basically attacked the gaps in the back three. Um, and you know West Ham were very good at working the ball around him, and that happened for the goals. Hmm. The whole decision to go to a back so three, I, I think, oh, is so, interesting yeah. because it's it's basically a way to accommodate John Stones. Uh, they have two center backs that are better than Stones right now. Stones is a young player, still needs to get time, uh, and so they've kind of gone to this back three. It seems like, or they went to the back three this weekend, and I just I question that a little bit. I think the if that really is the motivation, maybe there's a purely tactical motivation here. I, I couldn't see it, but it seemed like just a way to get somebody that you continue want to continue to develop back on the pitch, and I'm. I'm I'm not sure if that's really uh, the right priorities for this particular it d- game. It does give you a numbers advantage in certain areas of the pitch if you play a back three, because obviously a back four is very different. But yeah, it, it gives you a numbers advantage. But the problem is that then when that numbers advantage is almost bypassed, like West Ham did, as far as I can see from the highlights, then you you struggle. And they didn't adapt around that. Well, they they did the, a vi- the side the goals came from didn't come from John Stones. I think where Napoon this is where Napoon mentioning that. Everton were dominant for most of this game. A lot of that was because they were able to drop Ross Barkley into a position where he's more of a holder, distributing the ball. They were able to, at least at the beginning of this, because of that formation, have three more uh, central, centrally deployed attackers than they normally would. If they weren't playing wingbacks, then the Kevin Morelish and Aaron Lennon players would be playing wider with Ross Barkley between them. And I think that really did help during this game. I, I think a lot of that was just West Ham, though. West Ham seemed really ineffective. It was just one of those yeah. games, we've talked about it before, where West Ham kind of comes off of the blocks and doesn't look that great or not bad, but yeah. they just aren't doing their normal West Hammy stuff. And mm. by the end of this game, it had caught up with them. Gentlemen, one more game to talk about before we go into the last segment of the show, Chelsea versus Stoke. There are some things to talk about here. I think Bertrand Traore's goal was obviously a very good one. Another uh, goal that maybe second to Harry Kane's goal, which was just amazing. Uh, one of the goals of the weekend. Uh, at the same time, we keep harp- going back to this, Lawrence, 
Chelsea keeps reinforcing the fact that although they, on form, are one of the best teams in the league right now, they're kind of where they should be as far as the table is concerned, right in the middle of the league as far as how their actual performances are portraying them. Yeah, in the second half of the season. Right. Um, I, I sort of struggle to uh, analyze Chelsea, but you know, let's talk about them a little bit. Uh, the structure of the midfield is still... Um, one which I think will change. A lot of it is is again subject to change next season uh, when the new manager comes in. I'm, I would be incredibly frustrated right now if I was a Chelsea fan because I look at that team and I think they should be playing uh, better than they are right now. Um, basically, because if you look at the structure, you know they're basically playing against a, a Stoke side that again haven't offered a lot against a number of teams this season and have played very well against some sides. This wasn't uh, one of those matches. At, I, I'm consistently just underwhelmed by Chelsea. And I think I, I'm finding that hard to sort of find remedies to that mm. because there's a lot of players in there that look like they need a, ch- a change of, uh, maybe not a change of scene, but a change of manager again in there. They're more solid, sure. I don't find them particularly enterprising or exciting to watch, though. Yeah, I think a lot of Chelsea fans agree with you. And I think a lot of Chelsea fans are focusing on next year and Antonio Conte already. If they're not focused on the midweek matchup against Paris Saint-Germain, Champions League is back. We're going to talk about that game. We're going to talk about Hull versus Arsenal in the FA Cup. Next segment, our last one. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Final segment of the show, World Soccer Talk Podcast. Each week we do our top fours, even though they're getting a little bit more static. And guys, also regarding the top four on form, I feel like as we're approaching the end of the year, it's a little bit more silly. But um, I'll go ahead and bite the bullet and be the first one on that, since I went last on our Players of the Week. On form, I have Leicester number one, even though they have a loss on their form sheet and Chelsea does not. But Chelsea, I, though I have them number two, I just don't think that they've actually looked that good. I am going to kind of tip my hat to the fact that they have, uh, haven't lost in the last six. Other, other teams in the top four, uh, I'm going to go ahead and put Liverpool, those 10 points in the last four games, and I'm going to include West Ham in there too, who have it identical uh, form uh, last six results to Liverpool. Four wins, one draw. End of the season, uh, my top four is the same as last week. Leicester, Tottenham, Manchester City, and Arsenal. Manchester City is now two points, within two points of Arsenal with a game in hand. That's the place where I have the most doubt. I'm starting to get locked into this top two. Lawrence. Uh, I'm going to roughly go. I'll go Leicester. I'll go Leicester, Spurs, Leicester Spurs. I'm still trying to work this out because when you write it down on paper, not much of this actually lines up. Uh, Leicester Spurs, West Ham, probably Chelsea then. The end of the season, I think, is probably going Leicester Spurs, uh, Arsenal, West Ham. West Ham. I knew one of us were gonna, was going to do it. Congratulations, Lawrence, for doing that. I, I did. Thank you. That is the one place where I really thought about it, but, um, I don't know. West Ham is only three points back of Arsenal. It's not. They've got two teams that they could track down. Nipun, your top fours. On on form, West Ham, Liverpool, Leicester, Spurs. Uh, end of the season, I'm going to do it. Finally, Leicester to win. Spurs second, Arsenal third, City fourth. <laughs> Good God. What a huge sacrifice, Nipun. A five-point lead with nine matches remaining. Mm. You're finally conceding. Uh, finally conceding. Gentlemen, let's talk about the three games that we haven't already. Southampton lost Jose Font to a red card denial penalty here. Sunderland went up through Jermaine Defoe. 
ended up losing that lead 1-1 result at St. Mary's. Uh, let's talk about this in terms of relegation because that's what this part of the show is about. Lawrence, Sunderland is actually the only team in the bottom four to get any points in the last three rounds. Norwich, Newcastle, Villa all have lost, have no points over the last three weeks or three match days. Sunderland at least has two, and that's why they're one point above the drop. How confident are you that Sunderland actually can can continue inching these results and escape that bottom three? Well, I mean, if you look at it, they're, in, they're obviously already escaping it. They're one point ahead of Norwich. Um, on, in terms of form, they're better on the other side. I think it's also very positive for them that they've got a striker like Jermaine Defoe, who seems to be able to snatch goals against um, an opposition. I just think that there's tiny, almost tripping, uh, stumbling blocks for Sunderland, which are, I'm going to look through uh, their fixtures right now. And I mean, they're playing Newcastle next. That's going to be a massive one because of the amount of points yeah. they're losing. Then, then they play Sunderland, Leicester, obviously on a tear it, it's more about their uh their run of games in the next four but then they actually finish the season quite comfortably against stoke chelsea and watford mm. if they've got a bit of a uh if, if they've managed to get say six points in the next four matches then i think that actually they'll stay up mm. and we know they always beat newcastle another result in the bottom of the table swansea one to nothing victory over norwich napoon norwich is falling into this pattern where they stay close in games but then one or two near chances in the last few weeks always falling to nathan redmond come close but don't actually end up resulting in any goals and norwich has lost five of their last six but is there a silver lining to that i mean they really are just inches away from breaking through in some of these games they are, and and I think it came back to what we talked about in January. Is that as you said, it's just it's it's not there's not enough goal scoring in the, in that team. They, they do create some chances. I think Holohan is a is a good player. We talked about Redmond before. Uh, they signed Naismith, and if you remember, in the first game, Naismith had a good game against Liverpool. But since then, Jerome hasn't done enough. So, I mean, I, I think I think they're they're destined to to, to get relegated. Big result, or at least big result as far as news is concerned at the bottom of the table, has Newcastle stuck in 19th place at this point, losing at home to Bournemouth 3-1, and this match really wasn't uh, there for Newcastle's taking. Bournemouth a much better side in this one. Now at 35 points, Bournemouth look like they're really close to safety. Something Somebody that is not safe, Lawrence, is Steve McLaren. Fans in mini-revolt asking for his job. What do you think the immediate future holds for Steve McLaren? does seem a fairly naive performance very often from Newcastle. A lot of their players getting caught out of position. Um, it must be very frustrating to watch them because they do have some really great players in there. His substitutions seem fairly bizarre at times. I know we're talking about at the top of the table, people making kind of a, a attacking uh, substitutions. I feel like sometimes it's the f- overall formation which is more affected. So, you know, I know we're talking about the individuals, maybe Manchester United and Liverpool, but w- he, he doesn't rip apart his formation, but he sort of takes away from the focal point or the one area which seems to be quite positive then. I, I still think that there's more to this than uh, Steve McLaren. You know, I'm trying to think of another manager, apart from kind of Sam Allardyce out there, that would probably be able to keep this Newcastle side up. Yeah, advocate. Um, I mean, <laughs> without, without, without joking. You know, um, well, he did it last year, so it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. But is, does he consider himself in retirement after what happened at Sunderland and how close he came to retiring last year? But that's the main question. Nipun, I want to ask you, Newcastle's only goal right now is to stay up. They're only one point back of Sunderland, although their goal difference is worse. So they need to make up two points. What is the better path going forward? Staying with Steve McLaren, hoping that something shakes out over the next 
10 rounds for them because they do have a match at hand or firing him and then taking your chances with somebody who is essentially random at this point because yeah. like who's even out there at this point i i think uh all things considered i think they they should stick with steve mclaren simply because it is difficult to get someone in at this time it's rare that you get you do get someone in this time and you actually still end up staying up uh so given those considerations i think it's more likely that sticking with mclaren and hoping uh, that some of the players that do have quality. I, I mean, one of the moments of the, the week for me, one of the best plays of the week came from Newcastle, was that that incredible pass by John Shelby to set up Perez for, IUZ Perez for their only goal. And if you if they can create those kinds of moments, I think Newcastle will be fine. But it's just too rare at this point, isn't it? Yeah, well, too rare, too inconsistent, although they do have the talent. Let's go to the midweek res- midweek fixtures uh, across two different competitions, one that's going to have a big effect on the title race, depending how Arsenal manages it. Lawrence, I want to go to you. Tuesday, mm-hmm. Arsenal goes to Hull replay in the FA Cup, obviously a competition that Arsenal is taking seriously. They have a chance mm-hmm. to be the first uh, club to win this thing three times in a row. At the same time, devote too many resources to this not only does your title race maybe take a hit, but you're now being drawn into a race for fourth place. West Ham is only three points back. So how do you strike that balance? Or do you just look at every match at this point as we have to put our best team out there? I think you strike the balance that they do have enough good players and within the squad to be able to beat a whole side. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think Arsene Wenger is particularly hung up about the FA Cup, although it would seem to be his only realistic piece of silverware at this point. Um I think it's still manageable. I mean, you look at the team he played at the weekend, you look at the substitutions that he made, um, and I think they've got more than enough depth to deal with the likes of Hull. Uh, Hull really were playing up in the last game to what Arsenal uh, were. Um, and I, I think they're going to try and do the same again. The problem for Arsenal is this is obviously an away fixture. Um, so it's just yet more travel for them. Um, I agree that it's probably an issue, but I, I also feel like yeah, I, I just don't. I, there's there's too many quality players in there for them not to get through in this one. I agree with you, but how many times have we said that about Arsenal Cup ties over the last few years? Let's shift our Been focus. Great. They're not going through. Let's, <laughs> let's shift our focus to Champions League. Two matches on Tuesday. Wolfsburg is hosting Ghent. 3-2 lead for Wolves there after giving up two late goals in Belgium. Real Madrid, two goals up on Roma. Heavy favorites in that one. On Wednesday, Zenit and Benfica. Benfica got a stoppage time goal in Portugal three weeks ago. They're up one going back to Russia, but the one game that we really care about here in Apoon is Chelsea versus PSG. PSG just last weekend or two weekends ago against Lyon dropped their first match in Ligue 1 in oh, just about a year. This weekend against Montpellier, they were drawn nil-nil. Of course, that is on the back of a 2-1 victory against Chelsea in the first leg of this one where they didn't look particularly good. They just came on late. PSG has the more talent. They are the team that has performed better throughout this season. But Chelsea maybe has an opening here against a PSG side that hasn't been putting its best foot forward lately. How do you see this one shaking out? I see uh, PSG winning both legs, and uh, this is something that I think is uh, not easy because I think Chelsea are always stronger in Europe uh, than they are in the league. They ju- they just have this mentality where uh, they they seem to do well in these knockout stages, regardless of who the manager is. Uh, they tend to do well. the The reason I say that is because for me, with Ibra, Cavani, and Di Maria in particular, and of course Thiago Mora, I think they are a uh, Lucas Mora. Sorry, they they are a fantastic side going forward and Chelsea on the other hand with Costa uh, with Costa being their main outlay 
with the problem with Costa has been that he struggled in the Champions League uh, this year. So I don't know if they'll be able to create enough, and I know that PSG will. So from that sense, I think PSG wins both legs, including this one this week. That certainly seems to be the safe bet. But Lawrence, on the other hand, one nil victory at home, Chelsea goes through. That's not such a difficult uh, result to imagine. As as much as Chelsea is the inferior side here, PSG has been struggling lately. Chelsea seems to be now targeting these cup competitions. We saw Diego Costa was arrested this weekend, part of the reason Traore had that goal. It seems like PSG is cutting this one close enough to where a Chelsea team, while inferior but experienced, has a decent enough chance in this one. Yeah, I mean, mainly because... I'm not sure I agree with you, Richard. No, no, I do agree. I I guess what I'm saying is, you know, they're taking them home. Why why not give them a decent chance in this one? Um, You know, and PSG have also had uh, some surprise results. I like the one against Fiona, like you say. Um, uh, The problem is with analysing these kind of games, there are a lot of mercurial players on both teams, uh, not least for PSG. So if Zlatan has a great night, or, you know, any of those sides, any of those players have a great night, then you've got... You basically got a, a result which seems like anomalous, hmm. and that's partly what the Champions League is. I mean, I don't understand, guys, why we don't have a European Super League. Oh boy. Okay. Well, let's go ahead. <laughs> let's go ahead and start transitioning. Without Leicester, I might add. <laughs> oh, because boy. they didn't invent football. There you go, Chuck. Thanks for coming on the show there. Uh, Europa League <laughs> might actually have better fixtures this week, especially for English teams. We talked about Liverpool, Manchester United, but Tottenham is going up against the favorites in this tournament, BVB, and maybe the marquee tie across all European competitions at this point. But we will talk about those matchups Wednesday when Kartik Krishnayer is back on the show, who will join me to review Champions League midweek and talk about Europa League as well as the 30th round of action in the Premier League. But until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, of sites. I'm Richard Farley for Nimpu and Chopra. Lawrence, enjoy football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7 Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.